Happy summer, everyone. How are we doing? We doing good? Good. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to Philippians 2? That's where we're going to be hanging out this morning. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles right now who'd love to get a Bible to you. And if you don't own a Bible, as always, keep that as um, a gift to you. My name is Pastor Cal. I'm the lead pastor here. If you've been visiting, welcome to church uh, this morning. And uh, here's what we've been doing all spring. We've been spending the last like eight weeks in a series called How People Change. And what we've been doing is we've been in Romans 6 through 8, kind of building out the theological framework for how we change as followers of Jesus. And what we're doing today is the series sort of shifts, and now we're going from the theological to the very, very practical. So for the next five or six weeks, we're going to hit very practical issues that you and I need and can change in. So I'm really excited about our time together today. I think it's going to be really helpful and really practical. And as you're turning to Philippians 2, um, I need to let you know one of my jobs as a preacher and a pastor is I have to understand the cultural context in the place that I am pastoring. I've got to understand this area. I've got to understand what makes people tick. And I've got to understand what are the issues and blind spots that people living in the Tri-Cities or West Michigan might have. Um, An example of this is pastors in New York or pastors in uh, Chicago. They'll say that one of the things they have to be aware of is just how capitalism and big corporations and materialism can drive so many people. That it's so easy for us to find our worth or our value in our job title, what company we work for, what position we have, how much money we are making. And they say even in bigger cities, that can even be an inflated issue that they have to address and deal with. Uh, Mary and I, we did a ministry in Orlando. I was a high school pastor there for a couple years. And uh, here's what we learned about Orlando that we had no idea when we moved down there. Orlando is influenced by Disney. It is the home of Disney. And so everything in Orlando is super event driven. Everyone wants to go to parties or go to events or to be entertained. So this is how it would play out. Um, we had a, a pool at our house when we lived in Orlando. And uh, in like the summer, we'd be like, hey, uh, we'd go to our high schoolers. Friday night, do you guys want to just come over, hang out? We'll grill some burgers and uh, we'll have uh, just hang out at the pool. And the high schoolers would be like, no, why would we do that? We don't hang out. That doesn't sound like any fun at all. That doesn't sound like entertainment at all. We'd rather go to a movie or or, or go to Disney or Universal or do something like that. But if we gave out invitations and if we said, hey, next week we're having a pool party at our house and you're invited and we're going to be grilling burgers, I'd get 30 kids to show up. And then they'd all show up and I'd be like, you realize this is the same thing as hanging out. And they're like, no, it's not. This is a party. And I'm like, you guys are weirdos, right? I don't understand you. But like there was this Disney entertainment thing that was a big deal in Orlando. So I have been here now uh, doing ministry at this church for a little over 12 years. I've been here a long time. I understand this area well. Do you want to know what our thing is? Do you want to know what our blind spot is? It's the summer. It's the summer. So if you're taking notes, here's what I want to start with. Here's the big problem I think we need to address today. It's this. It's that summertime has a tendency to accelerate our selfishness. I think this is a real thing for us as people living in the Tri-Cities. I think if we were honest, every time it gets to about this time of year, there's a little voice in our heart that is screaming, it's the summer of Cal, Right? It's like, it's here. We're ready for it. We've been waiting for it. And by the way, I think we have this temptation for good reason. 
I think there is no better or more beautiful place to live in the entire country than in West Michigan for about four months of the year, right? Eight months, mediocre. Four months, we are crushing it. And like June through September, this place is the best. And there is so much that we can do. There's the beach, there's the boardwalk, there's boating, there's camping, there's golfing, there's fishing, there's hiking, there's bonfires. We even have a place called Michigan's Adventure. What more could you possibly want? And the other thing that happens in the summer is our schedules change. Our kids are at home from school. Life is more flexible. Routines are different. And if we're not careful, all of this can lead to a mentality that summer is about me. Like, listen, I I want you to know, I feel this. Right? Like it's way easier for me to go to the office and to spend my day writing emails when it's 42 and drizzly outside than when it's 85 and it's beautiful and my kids are home from school. And it's like, man, I could go to Pronto Pups and and eat five hot dogs and I could go to Dairy Treat and I could walk the boardwalk. Like there's so many things when it's nice out that we'd rather be doing. We tend to get selfish. And so listen, I can't speak for the entire community, but can I share some data points on how this plays out in our church? Um, we've been doing this long enough, we've been doing ministry, we've been here, we've been tracking attendance even long enough that we know for certain that in the summer, when the weather's crummy out, like it is today, when it's cold and when it's rainy, our attendance will rise by 10 to 15% across all of our campuses. All right, so here's what that's telling us, that for a good chunk of our church, the thing that sets the agenda, the thing that sets the priority for the weekends is not worship, it's not meeting with God, it's not meeting with our family in Christ, it's the sun and how nice it is and what can or can't I be doing. Here's another one. Uh, Many of you know that we have a ministry in our church called Soul Care, which in a lot of ways is biblical counseling where we meet with people who are in marriage issues or personal issues or addictions or dealing with depression or anxiety. And we try to kind of walk through biblically, helping them untie areas where they're knotted up in their life. Well, guess what happens every summer? Our soul care ministry gets about half as busy as it is during the rest of the year. And people will tell us like, hey, uh, I think we need to take a break in the summer. You know why? I'm gonna give beach therapy a try. Like, I think if I just go to the beach and hang out, I think that's what's gonna solve my problems. Or it's like, man, I know my marriage isn't great, but what I think we really need is just to be on the boat more and that's gonna solve the issues. And then guess what happens in the fall? Our, our, our applications go through the roof and people come back and they're like, yeah, the beach didn't help as much as I was hoping it would help. As it turns out, I'm still the same person there as I am everywhere else that I am. We see these changes in ministry seasons where the summer flexibility becomes king. Just this last Memorial Day weekend, our church set a record for the most people emailing our children's ministry team in one weekend asking to be taken off the serving schedule for children's ministry. Not because people are upset, not because people are sick, not because anyone's leaving the church. What it is, it's like, man, I don't know what my summer looks like, but what I do know is I don't want to be tied down to serving others at church during the summer. I'll check in with you in the fall. Not great, huh? Do me a favor, turn to the person next to you and say, that's not awesome. So there are some data points that we can track that it's like, man, this is probably something to address or to think about. And as we kick off this practical portion, I want to talk about this issue that maybe our hearts are wrestling with right now. And we've got to answer the question for ourselves. Are we going to choose a summer of selfishness or a summer of humility? And this is where God's word speaks directly into our hearts. Look at Philippians 2, starting at verse 1. Here's what Paul says. 
He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection in sympathy, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Okay, here's the first thing we see if you're taking notes, it's this. It's that humility is entry level to Christianity. Humility is Christianity 101. It's basic entry level stuff. Um, My freshman year at college, I went to Calvin College my first year, and uh, you had to take a class your fall semester. And and the class was called Intro to College. And it was like the very, very basics, one credit, super easy, kind of a joke, but how are you going to survive and navigate college? And the stuff we learned was like, this is how you write a paper. This is how you fill out a bibliography. This is how you email your academic advisor. This is how you get a hold of your professor. This is how you schedule classes. It was all the very basic stuff of like, how do you do school? And they say they're doing this to help set us up for success. But what I really think they were doing is they were trying to weed out the people they knew they were going, that was going to fail. And it was like, if you can't get through intro to college, you have no business being in college. And they're like, we're just going to save you the money and the pain right now. If you can't pass this, like this is entry level stuff. College might not be fit for you. Well, look what Paul says here in verse one. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, if I could sum up what he's saying, here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you are a Christian, and if in any way you've been encouraged, comforted, if you love Jesus at all or are thankful for what he's done for you, then live with humility. Paul's saying, if you don't get humility, you fundamentally don't understand Christianity. Humility is the Christian life. When Jesus was on earth and he was teaching, he was questioned by some Pharisees in Matthew, and they were trying to trip him up, and he had this interaction, and here's how it went. Matthew 22, it's on the screen. It says this, it says, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, and they said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and all of the prophets. All right, look here. Jesus is saying that if you want to know what the purpose of living is, it's that you don't live for yourself. Right? He was asked, what is following God all about? What are the greatest commandments? And he said, first, we are to love, know, and worship God, our creator. And then the second is, is we are to love, serve, and be a blessing to others. He's saying you don't exist for you. He says, if you can get that you exist first for God and then to love, serve, and be a blessing for others, you've nailed everything it is to know and have a relationship with God. This is what your life is all about. For someone who calls themselves a Christian to live a life that never thinks about or considers or pursues humility, there's a massive disconnect and something is very, very broken. All right, here's the second thing we need to see is that humility always swims upstream. Humility always swims upstream. Look at verse three. He's gonna get into the very specifics on what humility looks like. He says this. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit 
but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. All right, here's our problem. The easy thing, the thing that will always be more appealing in the moment is this natural tendency we have to lean into selfishness and what we want. We think that's what's going to make us happy. And we are like that for a couple of reasons. The first reason is we are wired to be selfish. Our sin nature creates this selfish monster that lives in all of our hearts that wants the world to revolve around us. We come out of the womb this way. We want to live for ourselves, right? If you have had a toddler and you tell them, hey, I'm taking your pacifier away because I want you to sleep without it through the night, what happens? They're not thrilled. They get furious. They want what they want. They want the world to revolve around them. Uh, It's funny, I was in Petoskey this past weekend with Mary and my son, Bo. My son, Bo, was in a soccer tournament up there. And um, we played games on Saturday and Sunday. And Saturday, it was supposed to be 85 and sunny. It was supposed to be super hot outside, but because of the wildfires that have been going on in Canada, it got really, really hazy, and it actually made it about 73 degrees and cloudy all day up at Petoskey, which, by the way, is perfect weather for soccer. It was a beautiful day to play up in Petoskey because the smoke from the wildfires kind of made everything hazy. Well, we made it to the semifinals, so we got to play on Sunday, and uh, the sky was clear. There was no haze, there was no smoke, and so it was 85 and sunny, and it was really, really hot again. And I was sitting with Bo as uh, he was getting ready to start to warm up for his game, and he's like, man, it's way hotter today. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to be a hot one, son. And he's like, man, I really hope there's some fires in Canada today so we can get a really nice day of soccer here. And I'm like, no, that's not it, son. Like, we are not going to be team wildfires in Canada. That's not the position we want to take. And and I laughed because, like, he didn't even realize for a second how selfish that was. It's just wired into him. What would be best for me right now in this moment, regardless of the devastation it's causing other places? Um, I actually think so much of the process of growing up is God revealing to us our selfishness and us having to face it and weed it out of our lives. Like again, I did high school ministry for about seven years. I love high schoolers. I think they're the best. One of the things I love most about them is they have absolutely no idea how selfish they are, do they? Right, you ask a high schooler, man, are you selfish? They're like, no, my greatest attribute is my humility. And it's like, you have no idea what you are talking about. And then guess what happens? For most of us, when we leave high school, we move out of our folks' house, and either we go to school and we have to live with roommates, or or maybe we go into workforce, and it's like, man, I've got to learn to get along with other people all the time. And and I can't just have mom do everything for me, and and I've got to learn to compromise, and it can't just be about me, and we start to get revealed to us how selfish we actually are, and then many of us, we get married. And then it becomes not my life, not my schedule, not my priorities, not what I want to do, but it turns into our priorities and our life and our family. And it's like, man, in order to have a strong, healthy marriage, there's a lot of selfishness that has to get weeded out in those first few years. It's why the first few years of marriage are usually the hardest because you're being confronted with areas of selfishness in your life. And then many of us have children and those little monsters will devour everything, right? Every meal, every diaper change, every time we've got to change their outfits, right? They dominate your life. Like I remember Mary and I, we started with twins. 
And I remember after we had twins, like six months into it, they were just starting to sleep through the night. And I remember one time we'd gotten them to bed and we just collapsed on the couch. We were exhausted. And I just said to Mary, I'm like, hey, Mary. And she's like, yeah. I'm like, remember a year ago when we thought we were busy? And she just goes, that was funny, right? Like we just laughed at like how different our life was and how much selfishness needed to be weeded out of us. So we're wired for it. But then the other thing is, is we live in a culture that actively encourages, it teaches and preaches selfishness. Now listen, we use better, more creative language to justify it and make ourselves feel better about it. But we absolutely try to justify our own selfishness all the time. We use language like balance. We use language like self-care. We use language like me time, freedom, you deserve. We justify it by saying, if you don't look out for you, nobody else will. So you have to be for number one. You have to do what is best for you. All of this is very socially acceptable language. But what we're doing is we're just justifying placing ourselves first and leaning into what we want. So here's what I'm saying. If we're going to live in a way that says, I'm not going to be about me and I'm not gonna prioritize what I want in the moment, we're going to live a life that swims upstream, that looks different, and in many ways is difficult. Look at uh, the third thing I wanna show you, though, it's this, and this is a warning. It's that selfishness will destroy everything good in your life. Selfishness will destroy everything good in your life. Listen, God calls us to live with humility, not because he hates us or wants to take anything away from you. He's calling you to live with humility because he loves you and he doesn't want your selfishness to destroy everything that is good. Like, listen, there is no more devastating force in our world than self-interest left unchecked, right? Think about Genesis 3. How did sin enter the world, right? Look what God did for Adam and Eve. He served them. He gave them this amazing garden. He gave them all of the food that they would never eat. He gave them jobs. He was caring for them. Perfect relationships with each other. Perfect relationships with God. God like set this table for them to have an incredible existence. And what destroyed that? It was self-interest left unchecked. Adam and Eve were like, that's not enough for us. We want to be like God. We want to be just as powerful as you. We want to know what you know. They denied God his position. They said, no, no, we want more than what we were given. It was self-interest, right? Look at the worst things in our world's history, right? Like I think about slavery, right? I'm going to belittle and abuse and take and rob and steal and murder and look down on you because you look differently than me and because there's a lot of money to be made if I do it. It was self-interest left unchecked. Right? I think about the worst of politics, when people use their position and their power not to love and serve the people who are under them, but to take and to steal and to make more for themselves and to take advantage of. And all they care is about protecting their position rather than serving the people they were meant to. Right? Think about the Russian-Ukraine war. Right? Tens of thousands of people are dying. And if you boil it down, what's the issue? It's self-interest. Russia or Putin wants Ukraine. This used to be ours and I want it back. It doesn't matter that the people don't want to be part of Russia. It doesn't matter that it's been free for, for years and years and years. I want it, so I'm taking it. And so much devastation follows. And listen, it's not just in the macro that self-interest destroys. It's in the micro. Hey, what is the biggest threat to your place of work? It's selfish ambition, right? Like everyone's getting along and everyone's on the same team until a promotion becomes available. Right now, your coworkers, who you used to work closely with and you love, now they're your competition. 
right? So it's how can I cut them down to get the job that I want because that's best for me. And now listen, ambition itself is not wrong. It's not wrong to have influence. It's not wrong to be promoted, but there's a right way and wrong way to go about it. Right, if you are going for an interview or for a promotion and someone asks you, why should you get this job? You have a choice in that moment. You can be like, well, here's the eight reasons why my coworkers suck and they shouldn't get it, right? Or you can say, you know what? I love my coworkers. I think they would be able to do a good job. Here's what I would offer to the job and I'm gonna let you choose, right? There's a way to, to move up, but not do it by cutting down other people so people will think better of you. But that's not the way it usually works, is it? There's backfighting, and there's emails, and there's cutting others down. There's the meeting after the meeting where the things are really said, and it becomes divided and nasty and angry. Right? What destroys sports teams? It's selfish ambition. When people get upset about playing time. When role players aren't content being role players, they want to be the star players. When the star players make everything about themselves and don't lift up the role players. When families and parents enter the fray and they're mad at the coach about how their kid's being used or playing time, it destroys the whole experience for everyone. What destroys marriages? It's selfishness. Right, listen, by God's grace, we've been able to help hundreds and hundreds of marriages in our community over our time as a church. And almost every single time when people come in and their marriage is in crisis, selfishness is the root cause on one side or on both sides. And what happens is, is a partnership has turned into trench warfare because this is what I want. These are my expectations. This isn't what you're doing for me. And I'm going to keep doing what I want to do until I see you do what I want you to do. And the other person does the same thing and communication gets down and things get messy really, really quickly. All right. So what we do in our soul care ministry is we try to lay out, here's what marriage was designed to be, what it was designed to reflect, what it's designed to do. And here's the cool thing. If there's a commitment to honoring the Lord and choosing humility, anything can be overcome. But when, then, when that's not the case, when people choose self-interest, the marriage is in very real trouble every time. Do you want to destroy the relationship with your kids? Make your kids' lives all about you. Live vicariously through them. Put a ton of pressure on them to succeed so you can brag to your neighbors about how great your kids are. Try to manipulate them. Try to control them. Try to make them do and live and act how you want them to all the time. They'll resent you for it. Or let's get really, really into the micro. How many of us just wake up some days and we're grumpy? Does that ever happen or is it just me? All right, good, we good. I'm like, if you're not raising your hand, you're a liar, so that's your problem, right? Um, I find that when I wake up grumpy, it's not that I've woken up on a magical wrong side of the bed that doesn't exist. You know what it is? In my heart, there's something I'm being selfish about. I'm either not getting something that I want or there's something that I have to do that day that I don't want to do and I'm making everything about me and in that moment, I am grumpy because I am being selfish. All right, there's a real warning that I want you to hear. And listen, I know I'm using summer as the platform because that's what time of year it is. But whatever it is, when we pursue our own self-interest, when we obsess about what we want and what will make us happy, that could be a cottage, it could be a boat, it could be a relationship, it could be a friend group, it could be a vacation, a job, a house, a team, a school. When we set our minds and make our lives about us, we all turn into a worse version of ourselves and we're in danger of destroying everything good in our lives. 
So here's the question. If we're wired this way, and if we live in a culture that's pushing us this way, what's the way out? What's the way out of selfishness that destroys? Well, Paul gives us the answer uh, in verse 5. Here's what he says. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, here's the fourth thing we see is that Jesus provides us the example and the power to live with humility. Paul's saying, how do we avoid a life that's marked by selfish ambition? We have to get our eyes on to Jesus and to see how he lived, right? Look at verse 6. This is what he says about Jesus. He says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. All right, here's what Paul's saying. He's reminding us that Jesus was fully God and had all of the benefits of being fully God. That before Jesus came to earth, he was fully powerful, he was fully fully sovereign, he was fully loved, he was fully worshipped, he was fully adored. He needed and wanted for nothing. He had everything he could possibly want and desire. But then look at verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. You know, it's funny. I think when we think of the sacrifice of Jesus... Our minds tend to go to the cross, right? When he's dying for our sin. The sacrifice of Jesus began the moment he entered his mother's womb. Every second he spent on a broken world, every time he felt pain, every time he experienced injustice, every time he stubbed his toe, every time he was lied about, every breath he took was him actively living in humility, sacrificing what was rightfully his to love and pursue and to save you and me. The entire thing was humility. And then look what he says in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Look here. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that you and I are saved. You and I are secure. You and I are loved, not dependent on how good we are or our own effort, but because Jesus was faithful to love us and serve us to the very end. All right, look at me. Think about this. This is what this means. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to earn anything. I don't have to impress anyone. You know why? Because the opinion who matters most, which is God's, he says that I'm forgiven and I'm righteous and I'm loved because Jesus lived the life that I should have lived and he died the death that I deserved. He forgave me and he took my sin. So guess what that does? It actually frees me to pursue humility. I don't have to worry about me. Jesus has me covered. So now I can live a life that says, how can I love and how can I serve and how can I be a blessing to you? Because the gospel has already freed me up to not be consumed or imprisoned by the monster that is myself. Jesus not only is our example, but again, you see it right in verse five. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He gives us the power to live it out. All right, here's the fifth thing I want you to see. It's this. It's that humility comes with amazing rewards. Look at verse 9. It says, Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, so do you see the result of Jesus's humility? It says that God exalted him and gave him a name that is higher than every other name. All right, now I want you to think about this for a second. You have to remember, this was a real letter written by a real man. Paul, when he is writing this, he is a man who's in prison, who's awaiting his execution, who's writing it to a small group of people across the Roman Empire as this same empire, the world power, is doing everything it can to stamp out this new movement called Christianity. And in this moment, Paul is saying, listen, it doesn't look good for me and it doesn't look good for you, but God has given Jesus the name that is greater than every other name. And guess what? 2,000 years later, guess what one name has dominated world history like no other name? It's the name of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because God has exalted him and given him the greatest name. It's almost like the Bible is true, isn't it? Isn't that wild? But here's the amazing thing. God doesn't only exalt the humility of Jesus. He exalts our humility as well. And there's some great rewards we get from it. Here's the first. When we are humble, we achieve unity. Look up at verse two. Look what Paul says. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and in being in full accord and of one mind. You see what he's describing there? He's describing unity. He's like, have the same mind, love one another, be on the same page that when we seek one another first, when we look to see how can I bless and how can I serve you, what happens is, is we get unity in our families, in our workplaces, in our teams, and in our churches. Like how many of you, if I were to ask, what do you want in a church? What makes a church healthy? I think a lot of us in our top three, it would be unity. Right? I want people who are on the same page, who believe the same things, who are in it together, who are loving one another and serving one another. Do you know how that happens? It's when you fight against your own self-interest and you seek to be part of the solution. Like, can I ask you a question? When you came to church this morning, was it even on your radar to be like, man, I really want an opportunity to love and serve and pray and bless someone else today here at church? And I don't know who that is, but I'm going to find them and I'm going to pray that the Lord gives me an opportunity and I want to be used by God to do that very thing. Or was your attitude, man, they better have my donut, right? They better not run out of sprinkles again, right? They, they better have that song that I like and they better not play that song that I hate and Cal better be funny. He, he better make me laugh or I'm checking out. Was it all about you and what you wanted? Or did you come and say, man, I want to bless and love and serve my brothers and sisters in Christ. That is what will determine what type of church we are. We achieve unity when we are humble. My fear is that some of you come to church every single week believing it's accomplishing something, but you're just consumed with you and you're absolutely missing it. Okay, here's another reward of humility. Uh, you, it's friendships. You get friends when you are humble. So um, many of you know my wife, Mary, and uh, there is something that I absolutely adore about her and drives me equally crazy at the same time. And here's what it is. Everyone stinking loves that woman. Everyone loves Mary. Like every week I will be at church and I'll run into someone and I'll be like, hey, how are you doing? They're like, oh, I'm doing good. Is Mary here? 
And they're like, I love Mary. She's the best. It's like, good. Nice to see you too. I hope you had a great week. Like everyone loves Mary. And then at our kid's school, she's the substitute teacher and all the teachers love her. And she knows all of the parents. And when I go to pick our kids up from school, I can see the disappointment in people's faces that it's me and not Mary. Like, oh man, Mary's the best. This is true. I have neighbors who have not spoken to me in seven years. And they see my wife and they drop what they're doing to go say hi and to chat with her and to wave for her. Like people love Mary. We had a soccer tournament last weekend. All of the soccer moms, they adore Mary. So I always tease her. I'm like, Mary, it must just be so difficult to be you. Like your life is so hard having everyone love you. And I was teasing her about it this week. And you know what she said? She's like, Cal, she goes, people really just want to feel cared for. And I love caring for people. And I'm like, of course you say that. That's so annoying to me. You're so much better than I am. This is why people love you. But you see what I'm getting at is the reason people love Mary is because she genuinely enters relationships, not being like, what can I get out of it? But how can I love and care and bless and serve you? That creates friends. Generous people who use what they have to be a blessing to others, they are people with a lot of friends. Stingy people, selfish people, tend to be very, very lonely people. Here's the third reward. Uh, It's joy, right? He says it right in verse two. Paul says, complete my joy. And I love this because Paul's kind of acting as the grandpa in the faith now. He is older. He's at the end of his life. He has completed most of his ministry. And and he he goes, listen, I've been imprisoned. I've been persecuted. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten up. I've been left for dead. And he goes, my life has been full of joy. I dedicated my life to loving God with all of my heart and to planting churches and to serving others. And he goes, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And he says, I want you to complete my joy because I want you to experience the same thing. Here's what he's saying. The secret to a joyful life is don't make it all about you. Love God, love others, be a blessing, serve There is a joy that is in that, that our world is desperate for, and it's available to all of us. Right, again, think about your kids, right? We talk about how much you have to serve them and how much humility it takes to be a good parent, right? Wouldn't you say that, man, I love my kids with everything in me, and I would do anything for them, and they bring me so much joy, right? There's a connection with humility and service and good relationships and joy. Selfishness is what breaks those things down. And then here's the last, the last reward, or there's more, but this one, the last one I'll talk about is we receive supernatural grace. We receive supernatural grace. James 4, 6 says this, it says, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Living with humility is ultimately a matter of faith. It is believing that God sees, that he's real, and that if I live in a way that honors him and loves others, that he will bless that. Like, listen, if you don't believe in God and all that exists is right now, what motivation would there to be humble at all? Just get what you can before you die. But what Paul is saying or what James is saying is, listen, God does see and he's here and he will bless the humble You know, it's funny, Jesus, when he was on earth, he would always um, get himself in these things where he would have to correct his disciples. And and one of the big issues the disciples had was there was some sibling, sibling rivalry. There was selfish ambition. And there'd be times where they'd be like, hey, Jesus, when you return and when you're reigning in glory, who's gonna be at your right hand? 
Who's the greatest disciple? Who do you love the most? Who, who is the best out of this crew? And guess what Jesus would say? He says, if you want to be the greatest, become the least right now. Serve others. Love others. Don't make it about yourself. You know why? Because as Jesus is saying that, guess what he was doing? He was loving and he was serving and he wasn't making it about himself at all. Right? This idea that God opposes the proud, that should scare us a little bit. Like, here's the way I think of it. Um, again, keeping on the summer theme, one of Mary and I's favorite things to do in the summer is my folks, uh, they live on a lake. And we um, go to their place, we'll put the kids down, and kind of right at sunset, Mary and I will go paddle boarding. The lake is usually really calm, and we love to paddle board. And so what happens is, this happens like every time at the beginning of the summer, I'll get on the paddle board, and I'll just be cruising. And I'm like, man, I'm crushing it. I'm doing great. I'm in way better shape than I thought I was. And I'm like, man, this whole not working out all winter was a great plan. Like, I feel amazing right now, and I'm doing great. And I get to the end of the lake, and then I turn around, and in that moment, I'm faced with the realization, I'm not in that good a shape, and I'm not crushing it. I just had a 20-mile-an-hour wind at my back the whole time. I'm like, oh, that's why it was so easy, right? Now I've got to paddle in to a 20-mile-an-hour wind, and it's awful, and it's miserable, and I'm sweating, and I'm like, Mary, why do we like this? And so here's what I would say. For people who choose pride in themselves, they're going to live life into a 20-mile-an-hour wind, because it's not how we were created. It's not how we were designed to live. We were designed to love, worship, and honor God and to love, serve, and be a blessing to others. And when we step outside of that, we are turning our face into the wind. And man, do I want to be a church that lives and serves with the wind at its back. Amen? So here's a question I need to ask as we close. It's how can you pri prioritize humility this summer? How can you prioritize humility this summer? And listen, hear me. I love summer. Go do the fun things. Go to the cottage. Go be on the boat. Go to the beach. But listen, we've got to do it in a way where we're not sacrificing the best things for the things we want in the moment. And as we do those things, we need to do it with the mentality of as I'm experiencing these things, as I'm pursuing this summer, how am I doing it in the way that involves others and loves others and serves others? Am I being a blessing? Or is summer turning me into someone who's consumed with myself? And here's why I ask this, because here's what I don't want. I don't want to be together in September, all hanging out, and all of us have just become three degrees of a worse version of ourselves. We need to be people who live a life that says, man, I have been loved and served and blessed by Jesus, and it is a joy to love and serve and be a blessing to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for uh, this morning. I thank you for um, just the opportunity to be here. God, I even thank you for the rain. Man, our uh, area desperately needs that. Um, I would even just pray for those in Canada who are dealing with these fires. God, I just pray for your grace and safety over all of that. And God, as we enter a new season in our calendar and in our lives, uh, would we not lose focus of what's most important? Would we not lose focus of you? Would we be a people marked by humility? We love you. We need you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.